everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So happy to be here with all of you. We have a great show for you. We have two special guests, very unique guests. We are talking, of course, as we have been on basically every episode for a couple months now about the situation in Russia, in Ukraine. But we're also going to be taking a little bit of a break. So we're going to be doing that with Brian Becker, the amazing Brian Becker. But we're also going to be talking about some different types of things like exorcisms and abortion and Amanda Knox, some true crime stuff. We're going to be talking about that stuff too. And that's going to be during the first half of the show. But before I get on to the show, I'm very excited to bring on Andrew Gold, who's going to be with us for the first half of the show. Just want to welcome everyone. Say, of course, to hit the like button, hit the share, subscribe. You can become Patreon supporters. We've had so much Patreon support, and I really thank everyone for doing that. And that's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That's how you have access to extended interviews and bonus interviews. Great stuff from Vijay Prashad from last week. Really recommend joining the Patreon so you can also access this interview I did with Yasha Levine about the Azov Battalion. He has a really interesting perspective on that, being a Soviet-American immigrant himself. And yeah, become members on YouTube. If you become a YouTube member, you get badges and emojis and you get little Bodhi emojis. And of course, hit the like. Everyone watching should hit the like because that's how we can help fight back this algorithmic suppression which is real. And I think that's it. Let's see. We're not doing a call-in tonight. Tonight after the show, I'm doing Leslie Lee's call-in. I'm going to go on his show to talk about the Oscars. But what I do want to tell you guys about is that, of course, if it's a Monday, I will be doing Monday mornings live stream with Aaron Mate for Useful Idiots. That's Mondays at 10 a.m. And we go over the Sunday morning news shows that we watch so that you don't have to. So make sure that you join us there Monday at 10 a.m., at youtube.com slash useful idiots and then join us at a call-in at 11 a.m. where Aaron and I take your questions. Now, the next time that I do the Katie Helper Show is going to be on a Tuesday. So this week, you get me twice. So Tuesday, I'm having a show. The next Katie Helper Show will be on Tuesday and the guest will be Adam Johnson from the Citations Needed podcast, excellent media analyst. And I'll be doing a call-in after then. So I think all of that makes sense. You're going to get the Katie Helper Show twice this week. All right, so I'm going to, again, invite everyone to like, and I'm going to bring in our first guest. Very excited to be talking to Andrew Gold. Andrew Gold is a journalist documentary maker for places like HBO and BBC, and he's the podcast host of the podcast On the Edge with Andrew Gold. He speaks five languages and documents the world's strangest and most controversial people from true crime and paranormal to science and politics. So without any further ado, welcome, Andrew. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good. You? Good. I've just gotten over COVID, actually, which is why my vo- voice is a bit rough. Oh, isn't it? really? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's okay. You're British, so you already have a leg up because you just sound much cooler than the rest of us. The raspy voice makes it even even better, doesn't it? Even more yeah. sort of uh, villainous, maybe, like a villain from an American Hollywood film. Right. Right. The English villain from an American Hollywood film. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. 
that that <laughs> otherizing of your people. You've really it's cr- yes, the cross okay. to bear. Yeah, I survived. <laughs> you survived. Yeah. Well, thank you, and thank you for staying up late to join us from across the pond. You're welcome. So let's just get into one of the most interesting things that you've worked on, which was this film. Is it a film? Is it a report? How do we actually classify it? The exorcism one. It's a TV documentary, I suppose. How did you wind up in Argentina witnessing exorcisms? How did you wind up working on this project? And actually, you know what? Before we actually show that, let's just show, but before we talk about that, let's show a bit of this. We can show like the opening of the film. Brad, can we play the opening? some cases of, of young people supposedly possessed by Satan. I think it's a liar. I cannot prove it. Now it is happening. I'm on a mission to explore the bizarre and potentially dangerous practice of exorcisms. I'll be following Padre Manuel, an Argentine priest who claims to fight demons and cure young people of their psychological issues. He's famous for his extreme and violent exorcisms, and his viral video of a 22-year-old woman called Laura made him an international superstar. The demon-battling priest is now a regular fixture on TV gossip shows where he chats with celebrities and promotes his school for exorcists. With the power of the church in Argentina, I worried that the Padre's good versus evil routine might attract vulnerable teens I'd expect to see in the care of mental health professionals. We're on a... Okay, so we don't want to give too much of that away. So that's a little bit of a teaser of this documentary, which I watched it in its entirety. It's very good. Oh, thank you. So yeah, how did you wind up doing this, working on this? Yeah, well, so I've been making sort of mini documentaries for TV channels for a while. I'd become a little bit obsessed by languages and learning different languages, partly because I was a bit of a show off, I suppose. And I guess British people, like Americans, are known for not really uh, learning other languages. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to be like the person who did it, I suppose. I don't know. It was like an ego. When I was in Spain, I remember a British guy who was like a British historian of Spain couldn't believe that I spoke Spanish because I'm American. (laughs) Well, you guys sometimes speak Spanish, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. We, whereas we would, the French is always the one we learn. But um, yeah, so and Spanish was my, my, after French, my third language then. So I was living in Argentina and I was just like, oh, I'm always looking for like, what is a bit edgy? What is a bit different and weird and strange to investigate? And it obviously whatever I look, whatever I look at can't just be edgy and bizarre because then it's like a, you know, like a Victorian freak show. So you want something that also has some sort of profundity and depth uh, and a different level to it as well. So I was looking for that kind of thing and I kept seeing on TV channels and radio channels wherever I was in Buenos Aires as I've been living there for a year or so this priest um called Padre Manuel Acuña who is an exorcist which already sort of piqued my interest but then what really got me was how he was on all these TV channels and he was speaking you know very seriously about demons and what we need to you know do to fend off spirits and evil beings on Halloween, for example, like cut seven carrots and do that and mix it with some soup and whatever it was. And how very serious journalists over there, or some quite serious journalists, took him seriously, took him at his word. And he was seen as this very sincere uh, authority figure. So I was just like, my natural, you know, I knew he was just talking rubbish. And I thought I've got to somehow 
get to meet him. I knew that doing exorcisms and learning to do an exorcism, although I don't believe in the paranormal, would be a really uh, aesthetically interesting image for a documentary. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can get to grips with, you know, exposing something that's going on, which I think we did over the course of the film because of his uh, closeness with some of the women that he was exercising. So it was just a case of getting in touch with him while I was out there. And then a friend of mine called David, who's a director, we just went and filmed it like in between working and stuff like that. So if we had nights off and afternoons off from like other jobs and things, we would we just went to hang out at his church and filmed him. And it took a couple of years after filming it and editing it and everything to actually sell it to the BBC. So, so that's how it sort of kicked off. Wow. So yeah, I don't want to give away too much of the kind of meta story or the intra story that exists. There's an interesting dynamic between you and the father and the priest, but it just makes it so that the movie is about his exorcisms, obviously, and also about how he responds to being filmed and looked at critically. Yeah. So how were you able to convince him to do it? What did he think your aims were when you were going in to do it? It was easier than you'd imagine, because I think watching the film now, um, and I, yeah, as you say, we, maybe we don't want to give away too much. It's still, it's still riveting, and I, I don't really care anyway if people know i mean yeah oh well if it's up to me then like i mean he was he was just his assistant is this woman called paula who he exercised did a big exorcism on she had schizophrenia and other psychological issues and things um and was sort of being kept yeah yeah exactly and was being kept with him and he uh it emerged was having some sorts of relationship with her she's like 20-ish and there's another girl who's 17 and he's like in his 50s and he's he's a really creepy guy but to convince him was easy because he's one of those guys who's just, he just really believes in himself, whether he believes in his powers or not, I don't really know. But he had like posters around the church of the film, The Exorcist and other like movies with superheroes, but with his face superimposed over those of the heroes and the villains and things. So this is a guy who just uh, thinks a lot of himself. Um, so when I said, hey, I want to come and film you, I'm British and I think I can probably get this to the BBC afterwards. He was just like enamored by that idea. And he, th- he thought we'd come along and show how fantastic his exorcisms are and how they work. And the thing is, like, whether, again, whether he believes in his powers or not, his exorcisms do work. And that was the fascinating thing. They, they do seem to work anyway. They seem to make people feel better through some sort of placebo effect and that kind of thing. And they do get better. So he must have been thinking we were going to show that, which we did, and show these people get better. And that was it. But the difference was we came back a year later or two years later and we saw that. The, the people who had gotten better then got dramatically worse and were worse for their experience with the exorcism. So, And then you made another documentary while you're in Argentina about the crazy baby lady, yeah, which is also about a subject near and dear to the heart of the church, abortion. So can you tell us about that? We actually had the trailer for that one too. Brad, can we play that one? With just a week until the vote on abortion, I went to meet the face of Argentina's pro-life campaign, Mariana Varela known by her detractors as the crazy baby lady. Are you crazy? No. I think she's a nutcase. I think what she's doing is horrible. If your daughter was raped... I would never kill my grandson. La loca del bebito. Sex is not fun. That's what your mum's taught you. Well, she did it at least six times. She's a genocide's daughter, the most hypocrite in front of a campaign like this. You're trying to convince me not to have an abortion, no, no. and I thought this center was to help people like me. El hombre tiene que ser parte de la decisión y ser escuchado por la mujer. Es nulo 
el caso donde realmente la vida de la mujer está en peligro. En la Argentina tenemos niñas de 12, 13 y 10 años violadas. It was just blood everywhere. He handed me my underwear and said now it's time to go. No más perchas ni agujas. I'm sure that people die in those tables. There is no question. De, de la vida pasa por el hombre. ¡Vamos a seguir No hay abortos después de nueve meses. Sí, sí, sí. Se puede hacer un aborto hasta los nueve meses. Tal sí. cual lo que Yo te no decía. Sé si es, sí, sí, es te puedo garantizar. Estamos hablando So tell us about that project. So that was straight after The Exorcist. The Exorcist was, was coming out at that point on the BBC. And I, again, you know, just from being out there as a journalist, I'd put all these names together. And one of them was this woman, Mariana Rodriguez Varela, who is known out there in Argentina as the crazy baby lady. So instantly my interest is piqued because the crazy baby, lady, that's, that's extraordinary as a name. So I had been messaging her for a long time. Uh, I'd gotten her phone number somehow, and she just refused to do any interviews with anybody who wasn't like conservative media. Um, and I'm very much sort of center left or whatever, you know. And I, I try as much as we discussed before. I think like, I try as much as possible to be apolitical and to and to try and see both sides of every, everything, um, which was very difficult with abortion because it's one of the very few topics where I just really feel like it, it's just you know I'm very much pro-choice and it, I, it doesn't really make sense to me the other side. But that made it interesting to me as well. And so I said to her, I genuinely, genuinely want to understand you and want to understand your side and show your side and, and to get what's going on in, in your mind because you think so differently to me. And after months and months, I was back in the UK by this point, she said, yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. So I went back out to Argentina. I was like, okay, fantastic. I couldn't believe my luck with that um, and got access to her and her family. We went on the school run. You know, she took her like six kids. to. She's very, she's very much a sort of Republican, conservative, Catholic. Uh, lots of children, lots of family all living around her, very much part of the sort of bourgeois uh, background of Argentina. She happens to also be the daughter of the right-hand man of uh, a guy called Videla, who was a, the dictator in the, I think it's the 80s. So, you know, she's got that history and she's seen as a very, very bad person. And I was just, you know, really excited to get the access to her at the same time as Argentina was going through this vote on abortion, whether or not to legalize it. And uh, at that time, this was now about three years ago, we made this film, it didn't go through uh, the Senate. So it, it passed Congress and didn't get through the Senate. And it was uh, it was really sad, really, for the country. A couple of years later, only a few months ago, it did actually go through finally, which was very exciting for people on my side of this, I suppose. Um, but but meeting her was amazing because she's, she's sharp. She's like super smart, really, really smart, funny. Uh, Uh, and charming. And she was one of the first times, because again, we shot this a few years ago, that she tested me as a journalist and, and she she opened my mind to to sort of a very, uh, how, how people can have very opposing views 
without like one person being evil or not. And I, I was able to understand, I think, why she had the views she had and the fears that she had. Uh, and I guess we learned a bit about each other. By the end of it, because I asked, again, a bit like with The Exorcist, because I asked quite imposing, challenging questions to her, she got very upset with me and now um, she won't talk to me. She sent me a lot of horrible texts and now we're not, we're not talking. And yeah, her father was the like dictator from the late 70s, I guess from 76 he, not to the 81. Dictator. Yeah, he wasn't a dictator. He was like, he was the lawyer who like worked as his right-hand man, so to speak. Oh, not Jorge Rafael Videla. So it was Videla's, it was Videla's like assistant Got sort it. of okay. thing. Just one step removed. Yeah, I, I put that to her because one of the things that that dictatorship was known for was the disappearing of babies. So I said, how can you say you are the pro-life people when, you know, your father was taking babies from people who were seen as like leftist op opposition of the government and selling them to rich, you know, right-wing right. dictator-aligned people. Um, and she was like, I'm not my father. And I was like, but you sort of are because you're a huge supporter of your father and, you know, because she has backed him publicly. Um, right. and, th and that's a very complicated thing as well because who wouldn't back their father? And that's a really difficult situation she's in. So it's just, it made for real complexities uh interviewing her and a real challenge and yeah and i loved that and I, yeah. I i'm sad that she hates me so I, I really liked her you know she took us into her her home and she gave us chocolate milkshakes and things and she was really really nice with us so right. it's sad but what, what can you do yeah what are you gonna do but i actually made a documentary about the spanish civil war where i interviewed a lot of spanish fascists and also did a kind of fair i mean the editing definitely made an argument that was very clearly it was very clear where my allegiances were, but just the actual interviews, you know, I asked people questions and I, I didn't say anything negative about them. There was no voiceover or anything, but through editing, you really are able to tell quite a story. And I wasn't, I didn't appear in it. And then you also, your podcast is about it's true crime and also kind of the paranormal. I was listening to a really interesting interview that you did with Amanda Knox. People might remember who she is. They may not. Can you just remind people who she is? Yeah, yeah. So the podcast on the edge with Andrew Gold, it's it is paranormal. It's it's everything. So it's paranormal, true crime. It basically depends who I'm talking to, and I want to convince them to listen to it. So I've told people on true crime podcasts, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's really, really true crime. And I've gone on people's paranormal ones, gone, yeah, yeah, paranormal. But it's not really actually. It's more like uh, thought leaders and people on different sides of the polit political political spectrum because I try to stay in the middle of it all and. Um, and then really strange people that you'd never imagine. There's like the Coffin Confessor is one of my favorites. This is this guy who just, um, uh, he's, his job, he's an Australian guy. His job is to go to people's funerals and reveal their secrets. So he just like turns up and he's like, you know, this guy was gay, like to, to a bunch of bikers what? or something like that. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. Psychopaths have been on there, like real psychopaths. And I love, I love talking to psychopaths because I can be like, there's no front anymore. I don't have to pretend to be good and they, they're not going to pretend to be good. And I can say, like, what happens if like somebody comes in now and starts like ripping my guts out? And they're like, Andrew, you know, we've been through this. I don't, this, this doesn't bother me. This is nothing. You know, so I love that. Amanda Knox was really, really interesting because she's a huge name. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, she was the, the, the student about 10 years ago. She's from um, Seattle, I think, who was accused of murdering um, her roommate, who was English, Meredith Kircher, in Italy. They were studying abroad. And that was a huge story. And it was really interesting how the press was different in the States to the UK because the UK were, the tabloids were horrible to her, very misogynist, and painted her as, they called her Foxy Noxy, which Foxy Noxy was actually um, her, her soccer name because she, she ran like a fox. Um, but it was taken to be like she was this really um, 
promiscuous girl, not that that should have mattered, and that she had taken part in sex games and things, and that was why she killed Meredith, when in actual fact, it's like, there's very little evidence. And I get shouted at for this, and I, and I will do, I'm sure there'll be people going, she definitely did it, there's loads of evidence. But the evidence is, is so, it's nothing. Um, and it wasn't enough. But she went to prison for four years, which is extraordinary. So it was great to be able to sort of, the, the, the interesting thing about Amanda Knox is this Netflix documentary and she's, she says to the, to the screen, she's like, you're looking at my eyes when you should be looking at the evidence. And I remember watching it thinking, I, I am looking at your eyes as if I can find something out behind your eyes, whether you did it or not. So to see her face to face, and I found myself still doing that. And it's ridiculous. Um, I've been writing a book, and that's why I wanted to talk to her as well. I've been writing a book about the psychology of, of secrets and when we're keeping secrets and things. And there's very, very little evidence, despite what a lot of YouTube channels will tell you, that the way people look and behave and act gives away anything. Um, so she's very much, you know, she, she got put in prison for years just because she looked slightly different to how people expected her to look and they painted a story about her. So yeah, that was, that was a really, really great, uh, you know, a chance to speak to her. Just, I was extremely excited. Well, it's great. I started listening to that. It's very good. So I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you. And what are you working on now? Right now, yeah, so this book, um, The Psychology of Secrets, that's with Pan Macmillan at the moment. So that is basically, through my podcast, I started to notice that um, a, a lot of people, and I don't know if you, have you noticed this actually? So, okay, there's this thing called parasocial interaction, uh, which, you know, the talk show host effect of like the one-way relationship, and then you, you, you start to have a relationship with your fans and then, or listeners and viewers, and then they start to trust you. And I don't know, have people been getting in touch with you and revealing like quite intimate, secretive things? Um, I don't know if I would describe it that way, but I guess some people have shared stuff with me that, yeah, mm. that was kind of heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff they might not even tell a friend and they sort of trust you maybe. Yeah. And it's just like, well, why is that? And I was really fascinated by that. What, what is going on there? And this, basically somebody, somebody got in touch and told me that they, um, had killed someone. It was a woman who killed a guy and, you know, the police were looking and everything. And she gave me the fact, she gave me the, you know, I know it's, I've checked it out. It's a real thing. And it was extraordinary. And the most extraordinary thing about what was already an extraordinary story was the fact that she told me. It was like, why, why me? She's just, you know, somebody who listens to the podcast. And then other people started doing it. And the bigger my podcast got, which by the way, it's not very big on YouTube yet, which is why I'm trying to sort of make it bigger. But on audio podcasts, it, it tends tens of thousands of people listening in and they get in touch and people are saying, uh, you know, hi, Andrew, I listened to your podcast. By the way, my grandfather touched me when I was this age. And, and I'm like, whoa, let's just say, how are you first? Or let's start with some pleasantries. So that really fascinated me, like what's going on there. And I started looking at my guests. So for example, the coffin confessor I spoke about before, he's a perfect um, example of somebody who needs to reveal secrets, right? He goes from funeral to funeral, he gets paid ten thousand pounds by the dying person, um, and he yeah turns up and he takes the microphone away from like whoever's talking, or he stands up and says, "Hang on a minute," and he tells like whatever truth they need told. He gets their secrets out after after their death. So him and the psychopaths and Amanda Knox and all these different people, their relationships with secrets. So that really fascinated me. So that's why I do sort of with half my time, and then the rest of the other half is working on the podcast all the time, two episodes a week, uh, just trying to find the strangest, most unusual people. I'd like to get you on at some point, not that you're strange or unusual, but we spoke on Sean Atwood. 
Yeah, that was the true crime podcast that you co-host. You guys had me on to talk about Stephen Donziger, big focus of the Katie Helper show. That was fascinating. Yeah. And Sean's completely mad. Like he's like the most eccentric, crazy guy I've, I've ever met. And I got, you know, I don't know why he just approached me to come on his, to do co-host his show. He's a, he's an extraordinary person. So yeah. And it was great having you on. Thanks. Well, thank you, Andrew. Would definitely love to talk to you again, hear about what's happening next and come back on. And of course, would love to do your show. Oh, thanks. And I really recommend the show and also the documentaries. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you to Katie and the team and and everyone. Have a lovely evening, all of you. Thanks, Andrew. And that was Andrew Gold. And so that was our entertainment segment of the night. I mean, the whole show is entertaining, obviously, but in terms of the content being on a meta level, it was our entertainment entertainment section. If you're just joining us, that was Andrew Gold. We're about to bring on Brian Becker. Make sure you like this stream, everyone. Just hit a like, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So we're going to be bringing on our next guest. Very excited to be talking to Brian Becker. He's the host of the Socialist Program. He's the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition and the author of Imperialism in the 21st Century. So welcome, Brian. Glad to be here. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. Good. It's fun to talk about parasocial. It's nice to hear your voice and see you. And I'm used to seeing you and hearing you, you know, without you knowing I'm there because I'm just playing your podcast or watching your video. Uh, Likewise, a big fan of the Katie Helper show. Oh, thank you. So I have a lot of questions for you. You've been doing really great coverage and analysis of Russia, Ukraine over at the Socialist Program, which is now at Breakthrough News. I wanted to, though, before we got into that, I wanted to share a clip with you and ask you for your opinion on it, if that's okay. Something that Joe Biden said recently when he was speaking in Poland. Brad, we have this clip. But also the average citizen. Look at how they're stepping up. Look at how they're stepping up. And you're going to see when you're there, and sometimes you've been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women, young people standing, standing in the middle of front of a damn tank. Just saying, I'm not leaving. I'm holding my ground. They're incredible. But they take a lot of inspiration from us. Okay, actually, so that's another weird thing, but I wanted to play the other one. That also gives some interesting context, though it's a little bit less clear what the hell he's talking about. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Okay, so he's talking about Putin. He says, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. What were your thoughts about that comment? Well, you know, Anthony Blinken and the entire Biden team have spent the last 24 hours saying he went off script. He went off script. We're not, this war isn't about regime change. It's not, that's not what it's about. This isn't another regime change war. But, you know, when you listen to that comment, he doesn't look like he's off script. He's not like moving away. This is his speech. And maybe he revealed what they're actually saying behind the scenes. And afterwards, the blowback was so big that the Biden administration is saying, no, he didn't mean it. Those were imprecise words from the president who's speaking off the cuff. But just think about the U.S. government. Here, here's the president of the United States saying, the president of Russia, who's elected, you might not like Putin, whatever, 
He's an elected president. He's the sovereign head of a, a state that's recognized at the United Nations. And the United States president says he can't remain in power. Like it's America's decision. It's Joe Biden's decision. I mean, the U.S. said Noriega couldn't stay in power and they brought him to an American prison for 30 years. He was the head of state in Panama. And then they said Saddam Hussein couldn't remain in power and they had him executed after seizing Baghdad. And then they said Gaddafi couldn't stay in power and, and he was lynched in the streets. And Hillary Clinton came and said, we came, we saw he died and sort of uh -huh. laughed about it. Laughed, yeah. Then they said Assad must go. I mean, what other government in the world arrogates to itself the idea that it can determine who the leaders will be of other countries. This is the real story of American foreign policy. And it says a lot about what's going on with the war effort. It was interesting to see those comments and then to see the people trying to scramble to cover for him. And, you know, I mean, what do you think? I have no, I have no idea what they, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those rooms to hear what Blinken was saying. But I really do wonder what was happening because it seems like, I mean, one of, one of the things that you've, I think, have been really helpful in talking about is how if you care about Ukrainians, you should want a solution to this war. There seems to be this weird kind of psychosis among certain thinkers in the United States, either psychosis or like an inability to comprehend or digest information almost. And it's understandable given the media total propaganda kind of all out assault when it comes to this issue. But really, the idea that if you care about Ukrainians, you have to vilify Putin as much as possible, and that that somehow you're helping Ukrainians by doing that. When, as you pointed out, there were many opportunities for the United States to help prevent this from happening. Can you talk about some of those? I know you did that on one of your episodes recently. Yeah, certainly. And it's the most important question, really, because you know, how easy is it to go out and condemn Russia, denounce Putin, especially here in the United States? I mean, yeah, you'll be, you know, patted on the back or patted on the head and say, good job, you, you denounced evil too. Meanwhile, it's not even just Putin. The entire Russian people are being the victims of collective punishment, which at Nuremberg was decried as a crime against humanity when the, the Nazis actually would destroy whole villages punish whole villages because a German soldier was killed or something like that. I mean, that's what America's doing. And all things Russian are being vilified and demonized. But if you care about Ukrainians, you would think like, one, first and foremost, how can this war end? Will condemning Putin in the streets of Washington, D.C. or New York City help bring this war to an end? And the answer, of course, is no. But we the people of the United States could demand that the government that speaks in our name actually do the thing that it refused to do before, which is to sit down and seriously negotiate with Russia. Back in December, when Putin said very openly, we have red lines. The red line, the most important red line is you can't use Ukraine, which was the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union, which has a 1200 mile long border with us. You can't use that area to put advanced nuclear and conventional missiles with a flight time of six minutes to the Russian targets. We're not going to let you do that. So let's negotiate an agreement whereby Ukraine won't come into NATO and Ukraine won't be a staging ground. To which Biden and Blinken and Jake Sullivan and all of them said, who are you, Russia, 
to tell us who can join NATO or who can't? And who are you to tell Ukraine which alliance they can join or not? Now, frankly, if you want peace and if you care about Ukrainians, you would have to say, look, the Russians are saying to the Americans and to NATO to do something that the Americans would insist upon if Russia placed advanced missiles targeting our cities at the U.S.-Canadian or U.S.-Mexican border. And we could go back to the negotiating table right now, right now, we, meaning the government that speaks in our name, and offer an earnest, good faith negotiation to do just that. And that would actually end this war. But posturing, putting on sanctions, saying that Putin can't remain in power, that's not going to stop Russia. Russia's not going to like fold its arms and say, oh, uncle, now we heard you, Joe, where our knees are trembling and we're going to stop. No, the way to stop the war, and if you care about Ukrainians, that should be first and foremost, is go back to the negotiating table. And that is, I guess, people love saying that this is capitulation. You know, people love comparing them. One of the scariest things to see is how freely and casually people are just comparing Putin to Hitler. Not even comparing, actually saying that, like, Putin is worse than Hitler. The latest one who did that was Lloyd Blankfein, who said, you know, at least he didn't use chemical weapons against his people, which is something that Sean Spicer had to apologize for when he said that comparing Hitler to Assad. But I don't think Lloyd Blank fine. I don't think anyone has to apologize for anything as long as they're attacking Putin. Like all bets are off. You just kind of get like blanket immunity. Yeah. You know, I've been an anti-war organizer for multiple decades. And I have to say at each and every time when the U.S. decides to take out another government, launch another invasion, carry out another occupation, in each and every time the U.S. is fighting the Hitler, the new Hitler, the new iteration of Hitler. And, you know, a hundred years ago, when imperialist colonial powers invaded third world countries and removed their leaders and stole their resources, uh, they didn't have to give it some like noble cause. They didn't have to say, we're, we're trying to save civilian lives or we're going to protect the world from weapons of mass destruction or any of these rationales. They just did it because they could. But in modern era, in 2021, 2022, in the era that we live in, in order to carry out aggression, or in, in this case, to manipulate a foreign policy crisis as the Biden administration deliberately did with the intent of provoking a military operation, which I believe was their goal, they have to assign a noble cause because the American people won't say, yes, we're going to go destroy other people and overthrow their governments just because we want to. Now you have to assign it some morally justified ethical cause. And that's what we see happening here. Again, I played on my show, uh, Katie, over and over again, clips from Anthony Blinken in the last three months when they were like sort of sanguinely, benignly, calmly predicting that the Russians will invade after Putin had made it clear that, you know, they want serious negotiations, but if they don't get them, they have this plan B amassing all of these troops there was never a sense of alarm in Anthony Blinken's voice. He wasn't like, that's why we must urgently find a way to do this. He'd say, well, look, if they don't invade, fine. If they do invade, we're ready. You know, it was that kind of calmness. And I think the U.S. actually really wanted Russia to carry out a military operation. And I think the Russian calculation was that Zelensky and the Ukrainian military would collapse quickly and that Russia could you know, change the facts on the ground, so to speak, in a couple of days, 
and have a government that would, you know, assert and conform to the idea of neutrality. And that's what the Russian miscalculation was. They came into the country not really with a shock and awe type military strategy, the way the U.S. basically dropped tens of thousands of bombs and missiles on Iraq starting March 19th, 2003, to shock and awe them. The, the Russian idea, the Russian military plan, was to come in with a relatively light touch. They expected the Ukrainian military to collapse. They'd create a new government in Ukraine, and they would accomplish through military means what the U.S. would not agree to at the negotiating table. And obviously, that did not happen. The resistance to Russia is stiff. There's a lot of people dying. And if you look at the, uh, the news accounts from the last two days, the American government is now planning for and I think hoping for a war that will stretch into the at least next summer because they have Russia basically where they want Russia. They've evicted Russia from the world economy. You know, Russia and China were identified as the two major countries for the new military doctrine uh, adopted in 2018 by Trump. Uh, major power conflict is now the priority. Well, Russia's in a bad situation. It's evicted from the world economy. It's militarily tied down in Ukraine. America has united the European allies who really didn't want to have their arm twisted uh, by the U.S., meaning Britain, I mean, Ger Germany and France in particular. U.S. is quite happy right now. All those crocodile tears for Ukrainians, they're happy. They're very happy. We keep seeing people saying, making a very, really laying it on very thick, you know, this is going to last for a while. They're really just preparing people for a long, extended, drawn-out war. Yeah. There's no urgency around any kind of negotiation, because I do think, as you're saying, that they think that this is a good position to have Putin in. And it's funny, because who was it Lindsey Graham who said something? It was Lindsey Graham or some Republican, I'll have to go back and find it, saying that Biden didn't care about Ukrainians. It was all about the relationship between Biden and Putin. And I think that's actually true. I mean, he was saying that in order to argue for more belligerent behavior. But I think that's one of those weird things where someone is full of it, but actually saying something truthful, even though for him to take away is like to bomb, I guess, Russia back to, I don't know how he thinks it's going to happen since they have nuclear weapons. But I do think that that's true. And the United States' government seems very happy to kind of like just bleed Ukraine. Yeah. And, and even his comments, uh, Biden's comments to the troops, he said, well, those, those Ukrainians, they're very heroic. They stood in front of a tank, that clip that you played. And the way they're talking about it is like, wow, the Ukrainians are really taking it on the chin. They're very heroic. Uh, but again, when you hear them, it, it's not the kind of, there's nothing that says in their voice or in their message. That's why we have to stop this. We have to find a way to end it. It's really like, that's why we're going to send more weapons. That's why we're going to uh, send more American troops over to Poland and to Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. Like, that's not the desire to end the war. And that's why I think it's really sad that people on the U.S., not sad, like revealing that people on the U.S. left who really should know better, who, who recognize that the empire, meaning the U.S., empire, which really does rule the world and has carried out regime change and invasion and invasion and invasion over and over and over again for, you know, since the end of World War II. I mean, that, that why would we now go along with the, what's obviously a U.S. government plan when it comes to Ukraine by joining the chorus, which is simple to do, 
against Russia. And I don't support, again, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think what's needed is to say, look, Lindsey Graham, who's calling for more, more weapons, or maybe a no-fly zone, he's not the president. He feels he's scoring political points against Biden. But if he were to get his way, if the crescendo demanding Biden do more and more and more actually succeeded in Biden doing more, we will be on the brink of a conflict with the second biggest nuclear power in the world. And if Putin is in a corner and he's already put his nuclear forces on high alert, why should we be sanguine about the prospect that this will just run its course? Wars like this are extremely dynamic. Uh, If Russia, if the United States allows Poland to send, and I believe this will be the plan, by the way, that Poland will move into Western Ukraine and take part of Ukrainian territory, sort of call Russia's bluff. Uh, the Ukrainian right-wing Polish government will be able to show that it's standing up to the, to the Russians. If that were to happen and it ends up where the U.S. supplies Poland with weapons that end up shooting down Russian planes and Russia retaliates, Biden is going to be in a corner. Biden's not going to say, wait, hold up. We don't want to have a nuclear war because that's going to make him look weak in the front in front of Lindsey Graham's and the other demagogic things. So he's going to climb the escalation ladder like we are in a very serious, dangerous moment. And it makes me angry, actually, that parts of the left are doing so little because the social pressure against Russia is so great. People don't want to get up and tell the truth about why the U.S. endlessly pushed NATO to the east, rejected Russia's offer to join NATO. Russia asked to join NATO and the U.S. said, F you. Uh, Just like the Soviet Union, by the way, in 1954, offered the United States, the Soviet Union said, look, we're for a reunified Germany, a non-militarized Germany. We'll give up a socialist East Germany. Well, let us join NATO and then we can have a European collective security agreement that will avoid and prevent World War III, to which the Eisenhower administration said no, because they didn't want Russia to be in NATO, just like they didn't want it in the 1990s when Putin asked Clinton to join NATO, because then Russia would be treated as an equal and different parts of Europe, especially Germany and France, would start to gravitate to their partners or potential partners in the Eurasian landmass, meaning they would gravitate to the east, and that would break up U.S. hegemony. So Ukraine's Ukrainians and Ukraine is a pawn in this geostrategic chess game, and the U.S. wants to maintain world hegemony and control over Europe, and they don't give a damn about Ukrainians. And that's why I say, especially to U.S. leftists, don't be so cowardly. Get out into the streets organize and agitate with people, explain a difficult issue, demand a no-fly zone, and demand that the U.S. government actually begin negotiating in earnest with Russia around its legitimate national security concerns. Demand a no-fly zone? To oppose a a no-fly zone. If I said to demand one, I'm speaking too quickly. Don't demand a no-fly zone. Yeah, yeah. Oppose a no-fly zone, yeah. You were just parroting the sellout left that we're critiquing. That was you pretending to be them, yeah. The ones who are demanding a no-fly zone, yeah. Oppose a no-fly zone. Exactly. Thank you for the correction. Yeah, of course. We actually have a clip that Brad found that's related to what we're talking about in terms of, you know, a lot of people are calling this war unprovoked, which is something that a lot of people who are calling it unprovoked, I think they themselves would have disagreed with that statement. 
And here's a clip of Biden from 1997. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. Yeah. I mean, Biden actually knew what he was talking about. He was the chairperson of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a while. You know, in 19... 99, the U.S. did start to incorporate the Baltic countries, those countries, into NATO. Then there was another wave of NATO expansion in 2004. There was a summit in Bucharest in 2008, a NATO summit, and the U.S. announced that Ukraine and Georgia were going to be brought into NATO. And Russia said, no way. That was Putin. That was in 2007. Three months later, Russian troops moved into Georgia. Georgia and Ukraine are Western republics of the former Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin was from Georgia. In terms of Ukraine leaders, Khrushchev, Brezhnev. I mean, the role of Ukraine and Georgia in, quote, Russia or the Soviet Union is very vital, historical. And the idea that these countries would become the staging grounds for NATO to launch, you know, to possess nuclear weapons at Russia, that's unacceptable. So from 2008, after the Russians moved into South Ossetia in, in that crisis in Georgia, the Ukrainian government was neutral, basically, from 2008 to 2014, when John McCain and Victoria Nuland and the entire U.S. establishment moved in to support the Maidan protesters and, and supported, and it's not hyperbole, the Azov Battalion and the right sector, the Nazis, the Nazis in Ukraine who were the muscle that organized a coup d'etat against a corrupt but democratically elected government, the Yanukovych government, that was a neutral government. The U.S. media always called Yanukovych pro-Russian. He wasn't pro-Russian. He wanted to be part of Europe, and he also wanted to have good relations with Russia. By overthrowing that government, and from then on, it was clear that Ukraine was going to be brought into NATO. That's when the civil war starts in the East. That's when, you know, 14,000 people, mostly Russian-speaking people, have died in the East. Do we care about them? They're Ukrainians. I mean, Amer you know, and, and Obama, to his credit, at least, was cautious. He said, we're not going to send advanced weapons to Ukraine. That'll just, you know, provoke World War III. Trump comes in and, and the Democrats say, well, Trump is just a stooge of, of, of Putin and he's only our president because of the Kremlin in the Internet Research Agency and their $56,000 of Facebook ads. Uh, but, you know, again, Trump was even more anti-Russia than Obama. And Trump agrees to send advanced weapons to Ukraine. And when he holds them up for three weeks, he's impeached by the Democrats. And so then three weeks later, the missiles are flowing back into Ukraine. Now, the Russians looked at all of this, and that's why finally in December 2021, Putin says, look, if once this process is completed, either Ukraine is formally in NATO or a de facto member of NATO, those missiles are never coming out, and we're never going to have a day of peace. And then he says, and you can see this in his February 21st and February 24th speeches, if, if Americans actually take the time to read them, which I 
would strongly recommend you can get an English translation. He basically says, look, a war is coming. We can either wait and keep appeasing the people who are going to aggress against us, like Stalin did when he signed the non-aggression pact with Germany in 1939, which Putin says made us less prepared and we were taken by surprise and millions of Ukrainians and Russians died in the first weeks of the war when the Germans launched their surprise attack. We can either wait and do that again or we can act. And we've decided basically to act. And so this is the Russian framework. It's not like he invaded a country 5,000 miles away, uh, like Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, it's not, I mean, this is their border. So again, you don't have to say this was good or wise or ethical or any of those kind of adjectives to recognize that Russia's motivation is not imperial in the sense that it really is motivated by a profound existential fear that NATO and the Americans are queuing up for World War III as evidenced by their new military doctrine of major power conflict. And Russia, which spends $60 billion a year on defense, so-called defense, and the U.S. spends about $800 billion, and NATO countries together spend $1.3 trillion. Like if Russia is going to be targeted, uh, Putin says we have to act. And he knew that he would be evicted, Russia would be evicted from the world economy. Just think about that. I mean, for our audience, like he knew what was coming. He would be evicted from the world economy. And he still said this is worth it. That means at least in his thinking, which I think is important for people to try to understand, he did feel that there was an existential security threat. And if the Americans knew that, which obviously they did, because they were the ones who posed the existential security threat, and if they cared about Ukraine and Ukrainians, then the only logical thing that makes sense would be for the Americans to come back to the negotiating table and say, okay, Switzerland was neutral, not the end of the world. Finland was neutral. Austria was neutral. We agree Ukraine can be neutral. But that's not what Biden and the Pentagon wanted. They wanted this. And that's what we have. And what is it about this that they want in particular? What they want here, the, the biggest problem for the United States was 17 European countries had joined the Belt and Road Initiative, starting to lean towards China. Uh, Germany was dependent on Russian natural gas. Uh, 40% of natural gas and energy supplies for Northern Europe come from Russia. As the American empire was starting to diminish because it was bogged down in these wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Europe and, and, and Europe was starting to move to try to declare some degree of independence from America. And by having a confrontation with Russia, the United States reorganizes Europe, block discipline, everybody's in line, uh, everybody has dropped all of their apprehensions about NATO and NATO expansion. They're all going to agree to increase their military budget, which re really means buying more weapons from the United States. So it's really more than anything about controlling Europe. So that's why we say, I say on my show, Ukraine really is a pawn. The, the goal here was not, the goal here was to maintain discipline over Europe, which was key to American, the rise of the American empire after World War II. The Marshall Plan and the creation of NATO were the sort of the anchoring structures that allowed the United States to control all of Europe. And the U.S. had similar treaties in 
in the Middle East with, with Iraq, then under the king. They had similar treaties in uh, Southeast Asia. So there was this network of systems of control that America created after World War II. Most of the other ones have vanished. And Europe was the last holdout, and, Europe, and the United States was losing control over Europe. This is a way of getting Europe back on the American team firmly, uh, creating a confrontation which the U.S. knew might very well happen, and then allowing the U.S. to sort of run the show again in Europe for the next five or ten years. There's also a really scary mashup that The Intercept put together of some journalists really pushing the no-fly zone. And then the mashup ends with Ryan Grimm asking Jem Saki a question, and her response is very telling, I think. So, Brad, can we play that, please? Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have made so clear that what they believe they need the most is more warplanes and fighter jets. So why is the U.S. assessing something different? In a White House press briefing, reporters repeatedly asked why President Biden isn't doing more to provide Ukraine with direct military support. That's what it says on the screen for people just listening. Why does the U.S. believe they know better what Ukraine needs than what Ukrainian officials are saying they need the most? It sounds like, you know, we're pretty dug in on our position when it comes to the no-fly zone, when it comes to uh, the MiGs, uh, despite this growing call, bipartisan call in Congress to shift a little bit. So to put it bluntly, is Zelensky wasting his time tomorrow asking for these things? President Zelensky is going to be speaking to Congress tomorrow. He's been pushing for fighter jets, a no-fly zone. You have to hear some of those same requests tomorrow as well. Has the administration shift, thinking shifted on that at all? Julian, though, calling for a no-fly zone. They're a NATO member. They share a border with Russia. How do we view their calls for a no-fly zone? And on President Zelensky's address tomorrow, of course, he is expected to ask for more assistance, as my colleague noted. A lot of the U.S. positions on that haven't changed, as you just said, when it comes to the no-fly zone. But on the aircraft specifically, the Pentagon said last week that Secretary Austin said they do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft at this time. Is that still the United States' position? Would a a strike in Poland on supplies or or anything, really, uh, automatically be met with a military forceful response, which would be a conversation amongst allies about how to respond? There are reports that a Russian drone made its way into uh, Polish airspace before going back to Ukraine and being shot down. Does a drone into Poland count? Um, Former ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich, has been quite outspoken recently. And she said, we need to mitigate risk, but it's also true that not taking greater action comes with a risk as well, because Putin is a bully and he only understands strength. Is the president showing enough strength against Putin? Putin were to use chemical weapons, would it change the president's thinking when it comes to these MiGs, taking the no-fly zone off the table, but at least on this issue? You prepared, can you give us any more details about what that threat means of severe consequences? The president obviously made the same threat last week. Is that purely economic consequences, or would there potentially be a military bad? Go ahead. So, aside from the request for weapons, President Zelensky has also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? Well, 
One of the steps we've taken, a significant one, is to be the largest provider of military and humanitarian and economic assistance in the world to put them in a greater position of strength as they go into these negotiations. We also engage and talk to the Ukrainians on a daily basis. And the president and this national security team has has uh, rallied the world in being unified in their opposition to the actions of President Putin. So those are the steps we're taking. We also engage uh, oftentimes before and after any conversations that any of these uh, global leaders are having with both Russians and Ukrainians and encourage them to make sure they're engaging with Ukrainians directly. So would Zelensky be empowered by the United States to reach an agreement with Russia and have U.S. sanctions released as a result? Well, he's the leader of Ukraine, so he's empowered to have a negotiation with Russia, and we're here to support those efforts. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of a negotiation, but we are here to support those efforts. We discuss and have conversations with him, with his team on a daily basis. So I thought that was very interesting, that last exchange. Yeah, yeah, very, very telling. And, you know, the rest of the journalists, I mean, besides Ryan Grimm, they're, they're such rabid war hawks. I mean, they're to the right of the Biden administration. They're like, if they, if, they, if they succeed at creating enough pressure so that Biden succumbs, right now it's the Pentagon, which is the voice of restraint here, Act weirdly. The, the Pentagon, Lloyd Austin is saying, like, no, we're not going to have a nuclear war with Russia because, or a no-fly zone, because that will be a nuclear war with Russia. There's a very, good, very, very strong chance of that happening. And the Pentagon is like, the Pentagon actually knows this to be the, tr- the case. And so they're like, wait, that will mean like several hundred million people will die. That will mean probably the end of society as we know it, if Daniel Ellsberg in his latest book, The Doomsday Machine, is correct. And I believe he is because of the fallout from nuclear radiation and nuclear debris and a nuclear winter. I mean, these cavalier journalists who are like, what are you going to do? Aren't you isn't he going to stand up to the Russians? So Ryan Grimm finally says, well, are you going to go negotiate? And she's like, oh, we are helping to negotiate. We're sending them more weapons. And Ukraine is empowered to speak because Ukraine is a sovereign government. Russia's problem is not Ukraine. Russia's problem is the United States. And NATO is just a fig leaf for American power. It's an extension of American power. The U.S. spends $800 billion almost just in the Department of Defense. And the real number is a trillion dollars when you add the Department of Energy and Department of Homeland Security and Intelligence Services. The U.S. spends a trillion dollars a year. Russia, as I mentioned, spends $60 billion. But the number, the next 29 countries after the United States and NATO, there's 30 countries, the 29 others, they only spend $300 billion combined. So when you, Russia's problem is not Zelensky. Russia's problem is actually not even NATO. Russia's problem is the United States. But the United States has now created a political calculus that has trapped the United States decision makers such that because they've upped the ante, climbed the escalation ladder, the cry that Putin is Hitler, like if, if, if Putin is Hitler, then you would go to war, right? Because wasn't the United States supposed to go to war against Hitler? 
But they're saying all of these things rhetorically. Putin is Hitler. This is as bad or worse than Nazi Germany. But right now we're going to listen to our generals like Lloyd Austin and not set up a no-fly zone. So there's an incongruent position here. And so the right-wing chorus, like the media, aside from Ryan, Ryan Grimm, are filling that void and demanding, demanding, demanding in an ever-louder chorus that the U.S. do more. And the more will lead to a catastrophe unlike any of us have ever seen or even contemplated in a serious way. And, the, the you know, I'm old enough that I was actually alive and old enough to be aware of the Cuban Missile Crisis when it happened. If in August 1962, people had said, you know, the U.S. and Russia might, U.S. and the Soviet Union might be in nuclear war, full-scale nuclear war in two months, nobody would have agreed that that was a prospect. But by early October, that was exactly the case. And if Khrushchev had not blinked, if he had not capitulated, if he had not said under threat of the U.S. naval blockade of Soviet ships that he would capitulate and remove the missiles immediately from Cuba, there would have been thermonuclear war. And I just can't believe that there's this kind of, I don't know, this apoliticalness or failure to really comprehend the seriousness of the situation. And even for people, again, on the left, not everyone, but so many on the left are, are satisfied to just say, oh, yeah, we're, we hate Putin too. We hate Russia too. Like, okay, fine. But that's not going to stop the prospect of a possible nuclear confrontation. We need to be really active right now, saying the people who are recommending no-fly zones or sending more weapons or doing anything other than negotiating, are bringing all of us to the edge of the abyss. And that's not hyperbole. Yeah, and then with the media suggesting the no-fly zone, then Biden and the Pentagon get to seem rational by saying, no, 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 not a no-fly zone, just arming. Yeah. And of course, arming is escalating it, but they really do seem like the reasonable people in the room. If a no-fly zone were framed as the insanity that it really is, then it would be harder for them to pretend that arming an unwinnable war, proxy war, and escalating a conflict were rational. But because it's so right-wing, as you were saying, and unhinged. Also, the other part of what I thought that was so telling about that exchange is that the lack of urgency that you mentioned, that you described, that we saw with Blinken, and we see here with Saki, where you could imagine someone responding to Grimm's question about, is he empowered to negotiate? Like, basically, he was saying, can he say... Can he count on the U.S. removing these sanctions if they work out a deal? And Saki won't say that because obviously they're not chomping at the bits to negotiate this. They don't want to remove sanctions enough that they would let Ukraine like negotiate ahead of them. And you can imagine a world in which if the actual motive were peace or ending war, they would have made that very clear that whatever they need to do, the United States to do to make sure this a negotiation happens, happens, they're happy to do. But that's not what they're saying. Yeah, there's, there's all of these obvious contradictions in their position. Like, if this is the, the, the struggle of a century, a, a struggle of all ages, as Biden also put it, you know, in his trip to Poland, and the U.S. actually only imposes economic sanctions and only sends weapons so that other people can fight and give their lives, uh, at a certain point, the, the incongruency of the situation will impose itself on Biden. If they keep talking like this, using this rhetoric, shying away from 
any embrace or not shying away from, but rejecting any embrace of negotiations. And at the same time, don't take the ultimate step of really being willing to fight uh, and die and kill uh, in Ukraine for the thing they say is the most important struggle of all time. Uh, ultimately, the tide, public opinion will turn the tide in the direction of a larger war. That's the logic of this. And I think the, I think the American politicians are so opportunist. They, they really don't care about anything except where they stand at a particular moment in the polls or with the media. I mean, they're really, there are people without character or conscience, and yet they have this enormous influence. And then you look at the media and it's not better, it's actually worse. So, you know, this, I'm, I'm not trying to paint an overly grim picture, but I think for people who are organizers and activists and people who care about change and want peace, it's important to have a serious recognition of where we are and where this is likely to go. You know, I'm part of a group of people along with lots of organizers and volunteers with the Answer Coalition. We're handing out 50,000 brochures, these trifold brochures at metro stops and subways saying why you should oppose a no-fly zone. And it explains in a very simple way to people like why this is actually a disaster. And when we talk to people on the street, we tell them, they think, oh, a no-fly zone, that means Russia can't keep killing Ukrainians. That's good, right? That's a good thing. That's a humanitarian thing. And then you say, well, what if it means the U.S. shooting down Russian planes and Russia now sends missiles not in, towards Kiev, but towards Washington? Are you still, you still good with that? You're still good with the no-fly zone? And nobody's good with it. But that's what the no-fly zone actually means. It means actually escalating things so that we could be uh, moving in the direction of global war. Yeah, it's really scary. I mean, if we had a media that was worth anything, it would be making it clear what a no-fly zone means and not making it sound like it's some kind of peace Nikki action of restraint. Yeah. Mike V writes, why are Ukrainians allowed the right to self-determination, but Palestinians are not? Which is, of course, a major hypocrisy and contradiction that I think the coverage of this war has laid very bare. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, because... Um Again, Ukraine is a pawn as part of the American empire's machinations to control Europe and confront Russia, where the Palestinian people are, you know, they're trying to live. The Palestinian people are trying to live, but trying to be a Palestinian who lives and to live with decency and dignity means to resist the occupation of your land by a government that is really also, like NATO, an extension of American power. So the United States is 100% hostile to the Palestinian people because the United States, at least since 1967, it wasn't always true. It wasn't true in 1956 when the Israelis seized the Suez, but it certainly was true by 1967. The U.S. sees Israel as a very valuable extension of American power in a resource-rich region of the world, and the Israeli settler colonial government uh, will never have a revolution the way the people in Iran overthrew the, uh, the Iranian monarch. The settler character of the regime means that there won't actually be a revolution. So it's a, st it's a stabilizing sort of anchor of American military policy. And that puts America in direct uh, contradiction with the Palestinian people 
who are trying to save themselves, save their land, save their family, save their culture from the endless expansionism of the Israeli Zionist regime. And so the American government is united about this. Uh, there's complete unity in the ruling class. There's unity against Russia and unity in support of Israel, which means absolute rejection of anything that the Palestinians do uh, or say or or in their yearnings and aspirations for self-determination. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a reminder that this talk of sovereignty and national determination is all opportunistic. No one really cares about Ukrainians. People do. What's sad and hard for us at the left is that there are people who are good people in good faith who are just confused about this. But certainly Biden, when he's talking about Ukrainians, they don't care because they could actually help negotiate a truce, which would stop the bloodshed. Yeah. If you if you care about if you really care about Ukraine and Ukrainian people, we have to demand no escalation, no fly zone in a, in a return or a, it may not even be a return coming to a negotiating table in good faith. And again, Zelensky can never solve the problem that Russia has. Only the United States can solve that problem because Zelensky is not going to put nuclear missiles aimed at Russia with a flight time of five minutes in Ukraine. That will be the United States using NATO as the vehicle. So let's be clear. This is not a battle really between Zelensky and Putin. This is a battle between the United States government, both parties, and the Russian government. And the real threat that Russia posed was not exporting revolution. They're not communists. They're, they weren't trying to promote socialism or some forward-facing anti-imperialist vision of the world. None of that is true about Putin. All Putin wanted to do was to be treated as an equal, to be brought into NATO or to have Ukraine be declared neutral. And the U.S. won't let Russia be an equal because that means Europe Will the, will the centrifugal forces in Europe will start to have Europe gravitate towards the East or, or at least balance the East and the West. And the U.S. doesn't want that. They want to make sure Germany, Japan, France, Britain, Italy, Holland, all the countries of the EU are basically consigned to be junior partners for American foreign policy. And that's what the real issue is. Well, this has been really great. Any final thoughts? I wanted to, I, I was doing a little research earlier today about the issue of regime change, because obviously, to go back to where we started, Biden called on Putin to, quote, not remain in power. In 1953, the U.S. overthrew the Mozak Day government in Iran, which many people know about. The sin of the democratically elected government of Mohammad Mazagdeh was it nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now known as British Petroleum, or BP. And the government in Iran said, look, our people are starving. The Iranians were very, very poor. And all of the profits from oil wealth are going to Britain. So they nationalized the oil company, and the CIA and British intelligence imposed sanctions on Iran created a lot of misery. The middle class became a political opponent of the government. And then the CIA and British intelligence staged a very bloody coup and tens of thousands of Iranians were killed. And the US toppled that democratically elected government, said it could not remain in power. And they put the Shah, a monarch, a king, a dictator on the throne for the next 26 years. The next year, the New York Times in its lead editorial wrote, underdeveloped 
countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy price that must be paid by one of their numbers who goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. That's the New York Times, the liberal New York Times. They're so, you know, they feel they are God, that they can carry out regime change anywhere in the world, not because uh, Mozak Day was doing something bad, it's because he, he nationalized Amer uh, the British oil company. And we have to think about that when we think about the U.S. did the same in Libya, same in Dominican Republic, same in Iraq. You know, they tried to do it in Syria. Like all of these regime change operations are not for something good. They're really always for empire and especially for the class in the empire that benefits the most, the corporations, the banks, uh, the biggest, the 1%. So if you want peace, you have to combine the struggle for peace with an anti-capitalist analysis and understand that the only way to have power is not to come to the Democrats and beg them to be something different or better. We actually have to do the hard job of organizing the people. And right now it's very hard, but we have to keep doing it. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Brad just put in this comment. In 1935, Major General Smedley Butler said that unjust slash unending war would be sold to the public cloaked in rhetoric of patriotism, noble cause, collectivism, et cetera, nearly 90 years later, still correct. Absolutely correct. And that is why it's much harder for us to do our job. It'd be much easier if people were honest about it. Well, luckily, we have alternative media. You're asking people to, you know, to go and show support at Patreon for your show, and they should. They should do it, because without uh, alternative media like your show, and other show, my show and other shows, without the alternative media, actually none of this kind of conversation will be will take place or be heard. So I, if you care about democracy and peace, you have to step up and do your part and, and to support alternative media. And we should figure out, we should have like a, there should be some huge meeting of all the leftist media who are, I don't know how to say it without sounding like self-congratulating, but who are not drinking the Kool-Aid on this because it's a scarily small group of people who are, I think, not falling for the trap of the way to help Ukrainians is by saying how bad Putin is while allowing our government to escalate this. There should be some kind of, I don't know, conference. Yeah. And I think as we get closer to a bigger war, which I think is going to happen, I think there will be other parts of the population that will expand the numbers of people who have the same political orientation that we do. Right now, it seems remote. But I, I believe unless things change somehow soon, the prospect of a bigger war is very, very likely. You have a, is a seminar, what is it called? The teaching that you do? Webinar? Oh, well, for the socialist program, yeah. For patrons to the socialist program, and like your patrons, we depend on people subscribing. We have a monthly seminar where people can ask me anything they want. We talk about whatever the big issues are. We do that once a month. So we have created a sort of a patron community of resistance people. It's a lot of people are listening and using the show. And we find it's a very good opportunity for people to talk to me and also to talk to each other. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This is excellent. I really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your ideas, your nuance, your knowledge, the whole thing, the whole package. Thank you. And everyone to check out the socialist program. Thanks so much. 
Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.